Welcome to Machine Learning. So, I'm on the cumulative gains, and uh, this is part of Scikit. And the cumulative gains curve, what that does is it shows you the probability of uh, a positive versus negative. So the low, it's it's measuring on the vertical axis, on the y-axis, is measuring a probability of likelihood, and on the x-axis is showing you the probability of unlikelihood. So the closer you get to a vertical y-axis, the top left corner, the higher your probability or likelihood of occurrence to happen. And the reason why that's important is when you're thinking of likelihood, if you were to say like you were to send out 30,000 uh, advertisements on a campaign and your probability curve was very low, then you would have a very low likelihood of getting a return. But if you had a high likelihood, then you would get higher occurrences in that target zone. And uh, so then you could rate, you could, you could measure your campaign uh, against the likelihood that you would get a payoff. So is that gambling? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, but on the other hand, if you were looking at gambling, uh, it would be in similar, similar to that because there would, if you could do the numbers and you knew uh, the cards, then you could say, based on what's remaining, the li- there's a certain likelihood that they could get a, uh, a queen or an ace or a king or something like that. But if you knew that those weren't out there, then the likelihood of uh, overdrawing would be less. And so then maybe you're willing to take higher chances. Um, And so that's the same way with the campaign and advertising. If you're willing to, uh, if you're willing to invest into the campaign and you had a low likelihood of a return, then you might not be willing to invest as much uh, for that return. And so the challenge is, is to get the, you, you'll have uh, the cumulative curve plot and you can do that against your test and your train data and uh, you can get your, your uh, uh, the true values and you can compare that against the predicted values, and that will then return back your cumulative uh, problem, uh, cumulative returns. So the, it, it measures the predicted against the true value, and then it will calculate probability curve. Then you'll have a baseline curve, which is a diagonal and that will show you 
um, how far off of the uh, curve is from that baseline that curve. So that was interesting. I'm going to play around with that more um, because I think if I can use, uh, let's say you use a campaign as an example, political campaign. If Trump was doing a political campaign, should and he had a higher likelihood of getting more votes, would he invest more money into the political campaign? I noticed Biden's been spending a lot of money on his campaign. Does that mean that he's scared that he might lose to Trump? So he's increasing his uh, political campaign money. And uh, if you're confident that you're going to win, does that mean that you should spend less of your campaign money? Maybe there's some rule, there's some weird incentives to spend your money. Like if you don't spend your campaign money, then you have to give it back to the government or something. Um, and those could be and those could be incentives to uh, increase your campaign spending. But if you are looking at a company and they were uh, they've they were advertising on Google AdWords and they were getting a certain percentage and the Google was telling them that there was a certain likelihood of a click-through based on a certain ad word, then they they would have to decide whether or not how much of their budget that they're willing to spend on those particular ad words to get customer clicks. And, it, and if you look at the uh, history of Google and uh, the way that they've been doing their advertisement, Google is a powerful search engine, but at the same time, it's also a advertisement engine, and that's how they make their money: is through advertisement and uh, and getting companies to pay for advertising on Google. So the next best thing is, so logistic regression does a lot. Um, Cumulative curve gains does a lot. And I think that's why you should always start with logistic regression in your model. And uh, that's what I kind of felt like since I saw that it was the most popular classifier, is that you should start there. And then once you uh, have gone there, then you, you move out to other classifiers to improve efficiency. And you could do some bagging, for example, if you wanted to see if an XG boost might give you better results or a random force. And then you could just put a logistic regression uh, classifier in there and then just do bagging and then select the select the, uh, the model with the, the best results. I think in... Uh, where you look at uh, the natural language processing, it still comes down to uh, actionable results. And I'm leaning more towards self-generating code. I like this idea that um, if, the, if, the, if the classifier has a certain rule, 
or a pattern that the machine then takes those patterns and based on that pattern becomes an input to the code that it can generate. So it writes computer code and then that computer code allows it to take particular actions. Now, in some cases, you can just use libraries and APIs. So you can plug parameters into the API and get the results back. For example, if I wanted to do a conversion from Celsius to Fahrenheit, there are functions that can I can feed in the Celsius degrees and it'll give me a Fahrenheit. Now, based on the rules of whether it's hot, cold, or, or, uh, me, or medium, uh, and combined with the uh, amount of precipitation in the air, I might want to start running friction coefficient equations. And if I don't have them, uh, use equations that already exist and then have the machine build those uh, build those functions for me. And then I can feed in the temperature, I can feed the amount of precipitation, and it can tell me the likelihood of the road being having ice on it. And um, so then what does computer programming become? Computer programming is then not a art or a craft as it has been in the past but computer programming then would be interactions with the known accumulative knowledge of humankind and so uh, the level of intelligence that is being generated from uh, machine code should be increasing exponentially so we're working with machines we're absorbing more functionality, uh, and uh, we're we're writing that functionality into libraries, and then those libraries are being reused. Now, let's say you have a billion functions, which sounds like an impossible number uh, to actually manage, and then you have a million domains. So you have a billion functions, a million domains, and say. Uh, a thousand categories or a million maybe a million high or a thousand high level subcategories so it basically then it starts to look almost like a a, a a genetic tree you have families then you have species so your your code then is broke down into some sort of pedigree chart and the machine then is searching those algorithms for possible usage or matches. And so the code that is uh, being written by the machine is being classified and categorized for reuse. And, uh, you know, the quality assurance could be done with a combination of people and machines to verify that the functionality is correct. But it seems it seems like there is uh, human beings have raced forward in a high high level of creativity. They've created libraries. 
We're reusing large amount of those libraries as nougat packages, <clears throat> or in this case of Python, Conda packages. And I really like the Conda because you know I've, I I do an import, it it doesn't recognize the import library. I go search Conda, I find it, I cut and paste the Conda, it extracts the code for for usage into my program. But see, that seems like a very tedious way of doing things. And it seems like the Python uh, should incorporate AI into its, um, into its uh, uh, parser in Jupyter Notes. And then when you have a library that is not recognized, it should automatically look in for a catalog of all known conda libraries extract that conda library for you and uh, make that code available it's just a nice convenience uh, additional step that's manually being done that could be automated and so we want to move things into pipelines we want to get things uh, understood that way and uh, and that makes sense because we're in a hurry and the world is changing we're we're aggregating more data, we're ingesting more data, we're using bigger systems. And, uh, and then we want to make those, we want to make that data understandable, not only to ourselves, but to others, so that we can, uh, we can uh, utilize the power of that data. You know, because a lot of times, when you're looking at large amounts of data, Unless you're carefully thinking about that data, you may not realize the relations. And uh, there, there might be relations in the code. And that's one of the, the, or in the data itself between the different features. And so that's what uh, Stepwise does, the area under the curve, is it's looking at uh, what point do the features cause drop-off, either on the training data or the test. So at some point, you're looking at your feature uh, list, candidate list. You're running through that, and um, you plot out those uh, area under the curve and your features, and then you're able to see at what point the features start to drop off, and that uh, that then becomes that then becomes the point where. Uh, that that's the number of features that you want in your model and so uh, uh, that can be useful that can be useful in your uh, design especially if you're trying to improve the efficiency or the probability of that model it's kind of rehash what I said earlier well so what am I thinking about in terms of uh, AI ML? It's kind of interesting because I was talking to a colleague last night and uh, basically expressing a lot of frustration at, at trying to find machine learning in business. And a lot of uh, business is, is, can be explained by just Power BI, just taking data, aggregating it, uh, displaying it in a stack chart or or in a uh, bar chart, pie charts, 
uh, card accumulators and it just gives you high level views of your data and tells you you know what how you're doing you know uh, maybe all you want is one number and that's percentage complete maybe what you want to do is see a scatter plot and kind of see how your data is being distributed over a large data set um, but it, it's getting the data engineered so that you can make predictions or set up trends on it that's the challenge and I think that that's the, where the data engineering uh, is useful but there's no automated way of doing that and that's the frustrating part is that you can't just give it the whole ERP with thousands of tables and maybe even tens of thousands of tables now and, and uh, have it understand all the relationships and all the correlations and start generating uh, probability models and building its own model from all that data. And uh, so you can't take an SAP ERP and just throw it at a machine learning algorithm and have it discover all of the uh, trends classifications what's weird in the data and actions possible actions that you could take based on that data it just it doesn't learn that way and that's the frustrating part because human beings do we, we can take the data we can think about it and then we can start to take actions so um, one thing that we were looking at to talking about is um, employee churn and some of the difficulties in the fact that companies don't do surveys asking their employees how satisfied they are with their boss or with their um, job and if you remember the podcast I did on the millennials a lot of the millennials are very upset and upset is the right word because they're willing to leave the company because they don't get recognition. And they said $150 worth of recognition for what they did would have kept them in the company. And uh, to me, that's amazing because companies spend so many thousands of dollars recruiting talent, finding the right person to come in and help them with their organization. And so... uh, it's a it's a real challenge to uh, to keep people in a company, and so they do things like employee appreciation incentives, where they give bonuses. But I, it's interesting if you had small rewards, little recognitions, you know, that are in, among your peers, and also. A corporate policy of wanting to retain your employees, then it would be uh, significant. It, one company, which was a large defense contractor, had a high turnover rate, about 30%. Every month they had people that were leaving. And uh, the work was really hard, there was a lot of pressure. Uh, got defense contracting was 
had uh, several cycles, boom and bust. And uh, so there was a lot of dissatisfaction. And so the company wanted to know why, uh, what were some of the key indicators that uh, would keep the employee there. Some of them were, um, one was the last promotion. So employees that were being promoted were more likely to stay. How, how satisfied were they with the work environment, with their benefits, with their benefits was another one uh, that would be a strong, uh, strong incentive for employees to stay, 401ks, profit sharing, health coverage. And then the work environment, quality of life, uh, exercise, uh, some team building. But team building can't be stupid team building. It has to be uh, team building that people like. It doesn't. I've been in some team building where I got done with it and I was all ticked off because I thought it was an attempt to see who was the smart employees and who were the dumb ones and then target the dumb ones to get them out. I didn't like that. And that's just my own criticism of team building. But I don't particularly like team building. I like to work more on my own. Um, and so, yeah. And, uh, and then uh, another area that could be is uh, trying to predict whether or not a customer will make these payments. So you could look at um, how many times the customer was late making their payment. Maybe how much were they were overdrawn on their payment, and uh, try to make a prediction whether or not they would be late on that payment. And uh, those individuals might be in a higher, uh, higher, more careful group, where the the uh, receivable clerk is wa- watching those particular customers closer to make sure that their bills are paid before their products are shipped to them. And, uh, and so the, that, that might be an area where AI could uh, help identify higher risk customers. And then also there's the customers that are on the verge of flight. So, you know, if they haven't uh, had any activity for a certain amount of time and uh, the monetary trend is moving down that they're they're purchasing less and uh, their frequency is slowing down it could suggest that they might be looking at other customers or other uh, vendors for suppliers for uh, choice to do their work so those those customers might be contacted and and uh, more uh, better offers made to them to keep their business so that it's real interesting because in my mind customer churn is function of how good the offer is and i've done a podcast on customer churn and talked about that and that one that podcast now is rose to number two in my uh my list on customer churn so if you might want to take a chance to listen to that podcast it's called customer churn and uh, the main point of that uh, podcast was is that in order to keep customers, you have to have good offers. And it all comes down to the offer. It, 
some of it has to do with technology, uh, contract type, den- tenure. But in the end, uh, people will come back. The likelihood of getting a return on investment is based on the quality of the offer. And it, that is in terms of cost, in terms of value, in terms of customer service. The, they all package together into what I call the offer. And so you want to, you kind of want to do, everything is not lying, but selling. And selling is a a great art. Um, You know, you're presenting incentives and reasons that they they might want to look at your product over another product or your service over another service. And for that reason, um, it's it's a good, really good thing to have um, sales capability. I've always thought that the salespeople had were some of the smartest people in the company because they were the ones that were constantly keeping the company making earning money, and so that took uh, knowledge of systems, knowledge of the products, knowledge of the customers, knowledge of the, how the infrastructure of the company worked and how the politics of the company worked and how the policies of the company worked. So there's a lot that went into selling. And I've always felt like that the uh, salespeople were some of the smartest people, emotionally intelligent people, as well as technical. Even though they would say that, most of them would say that they don't, they, they just use technology. However, with the, a lot of the salespeople I've worked with, uh, they were some of the most complex systems to extract information because of, of the, the breadth of what they were wanting to see and understand. And, they, and so it was like, because they wanted to know how their products were being used, which ones were making them money, which ones were losing money. And because it came down to that, it, um, that's what convinced me that those individuals were truly the smartest individuals in the company is because they had that visibility and they knew what the the most important indicators in the company were so i like to work with those individuals a lot all right well until next week uh keep doing machine learning and i'll talk to you then